Hello, welcome to Match Cut, a movie podcast where we take two movies with the exact same rating on IMDb and break that tie. My name's Aaron. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Matt. Hello again. Hello. Uh, So this episode's matchup is built on two wounded men struggling to survive in harsh and unforgiving environments with an unbreakable sense of determination and purpose. It's sure to be a true test of the human spirit. It's the Martian versus the Revenant. So, Matt, what was your experience with these movies before watching them for the podcast? I saw them both in theaters, actually, that year. Yeah, they were both they were both out in uh, 2015. Uh, the Martian was out slightly earlier, I think, first half of the year. Yeah, it was out uh, for the, as like a summer blockbuster thing. I saw that one with my parents, and then The Revenant came out later in the year. I actually did a double feature of that film with uh, one of the few screenings they had that day of The Hateful Eight and The Revenant. So very interesting kind of uh, dichotomy going on there with the, the tone of films. Right. Yeah. Similar, similar time periods, but maybe that's about it. Uh, um, one, one's about a hundred years earlier. Oh, well, in the grand universal scale of time. <laughs> in the cosmic the sense, <laughs> in the cosmic sense, they're the same, really. Yeah. Um, so I saw um, the Martian. I, I know this is only three years ago, but I, I'm pretty sure I saw it in theaters. Yeah, yeah. I did. I now, did. how didn't, I read, did you read the book before? I did read the book beforehand. Like how much um, before? Uh, I think uh, probably about a month before, like after the trailer started coming out, but before I saw the movie. So you're a Fairweather fan, it's safe to say. <laughs> I, you know, it's coming out. I heard good things about the book. I'm like, all right, cool. Read the book. This is like right when I got my Kindle. So I was in a big like book reading phase. You disgusting millennial. <laughs> I I have recently like this is a little off topic, but I've recently like looked at my bookshelf and just realized I have not picked up a single one of these books. I actually I actually owned the physical book of The Martian and then bought it on Kindle. <laughs> That's that is the most bougie thing I think of uh, I heard you do other than <laughs> using emotes that you paid for in Discord. I have expensive tastes, um, but I actually <laughs> you would be did drinking not... champagne out of a Taco Bell glass. <laughs> I would, but it's like a really expensive Taco Bell glass, but it's still Taco Bell, like one of those novelty ones from the nineties. Like, uh, I think my parents still have some of those Batman glasses, and then the Lord of the Rings cups. There's like 15 of them left on this earth. I won like an eBay auction for one of the last ones and I drink champagne out of it. I mean, that is a hundred percent my aesthetic. That that would be your aesthetic. <laughs> but uh, so I, I read The Martian, I saw it in theaters, and I actually had not seen The Revenant up until uh, we actually watched it together for the podcast. Yeah, I don't know if it was the best experience for you. But I can tell you personally, uh, sorry to spoil it a bit for people, I enjoyed it a lot more being able to shit talk with two friends in the room with me and then you on comms. Yeah, it's it's a heavy movie and I think it, it benefits from, you know, being able to add a little levity. Right. But, well, uh, we should probably start with the film that was released first that year. Yep. 
before we begin, one fun fact, just because I got bored in internet research, decided to look up like, oh, what's, you know, what would be a connection between these two movies? Like, what's their like bacon number kind of thing? And uh, Matt Damon and Leonardo DiCaprio were in the same movie, The Departed, together. Yeah, they, they were co-leads and antagonists and protagonists. Not going to tell you who's who, because that's a fucking banger of a film. We'll we'll spoil the movies we're talking about here. Other movies. Enjoy well, them we might on, get around enjoy to them doing on your own time. We, we That's might get true. To it. I would I would love to cover that movie. But um let's begin. Um so the first film that came out was The Martian, a film written by Drew Goddard based on the book by Andy Weir and directed by Ridley Scott. Appropriate a for a space name. movie. S- small name. Yeah, it was one of his, you know, <laughs> earliest projects. Uh, it was a real risk for the studio to give it to Ridley Scott. <laughs> yeah, a couple, of, a couple of unknowns coming on to a, you know, a big name, big name project. Yeah, you, got, you <laughs> know, fir- first book by the by the guy Andy Weir. You know, first time in the director's chair that year. Um, Ridley Scott. <laughs> <laughs> so Drew Goddard, the writer. Um, also worked on Cabin in the Woods, Lost, uh, World War Z, another book adaptation, and Cloverfield. Only one um, of those things is very good. <laughs> I mean, uh, fair. I haven't. I Spoiler: haven't watched It's a Cabin lot of, in the Woods. I haven't watched a lot of Lost. I read the book of World War Z. Did not see Cloverfield. Um, Ridley Scott. All jokes aside. Uh, very prolific career uh alien blade runner black hawk down produced a bunch of other films and he's uh apparently making gladiator 2 which yeah. his idea for that is insane or the original script idea for that back in uh, 99 they had a sequel idea worked out that russell crowe was basically an immortal uh soldier <laughs> Like, I think that he's supposed to be the guy that, like, stabbed Jesus on the cross and, like, was cursed to be alive. And, like, it was going to be a time-traveling movie with him fighting in all these historical wars throughout human history. (laughs) Like, going up to World War II where he's fighting for the Germans for some reason. Wow. Basically, the plot of Highlander, uh, The Search for Vengeance, the anime movie. (laughs) The bad guy in that okay. is an, a Roman, uh, a Roman uh, person that is constantly trying to find the dream that is Rome. Wow, I, I feel like now, like you get a little bit of like Assassin's Creed sprinkled in, maybe a oh, bit yeah. of. A, oh man, I mean, just the code. just the idea of Gladiator Two, just <laughs> everything about it is just like co- commercially bankrupt, artistically bankrupt, morally bankrupt. Really, it's like. How do you make a two? Like the only two I could see happening is like maybe a prequel like where, but like half the cast of that movie is like dead. Like uh fucking Richard Harris dead. Um, who was the, the other famous drunk in that movie? Uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> no career, mostly dead, but that's by, <laughs> by his own doing. Yeah. Uh, the guy who played Proximo, um, all right, here we go. A little live IMDb. Oh, by the way, correction: the film was made in two thousand. Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed. Yeah. Oliver Reed. Yeah, he died literally on the press tour for the film. Oof! I didn't even know that. 
Um, anyway, enough digressing about horrible ideas for sequels. I I would totally watch it, whatever form that comes out, and especially if it's close to that, I would totally watch it. One last digression from that: there's actually a series of books written about that that character that I talked about, the guy, the Roman uh, legionnaire that stabbed Jesus on the cross, mm-hmm. and he's cursed to never die, and he goes through history fighting on the wrong side of all these of all these wars just like it gets never to, gets it right well i think that's kind of his curse as well is to always be on the wrong side mm. of history it does sound like a roman thing it's very in line with the mythology oh the one other the one last quick digression i typed in i don't remember what i ty- started typing in is mark watney and google autocomplete finished off is mark watney real um, ah, work, work of fiction. <laughs> we have not set up colonies on Mars yet. Someday, maybe. But wait, wait you mean NASA isn't isn't funded for a Mars mission? Um, we we can't be that podcast. We can't no. just be like they've been there, man. They know. I mean, we could, but it would really detract from our our branding. <laughs> We're here to talk about movies with somewhat lengthy digressions but uh, speaking of movies the martian was a 2015 <laughs> film written by drew goddard oh here we go all right <laughs> the film opens um on the aries 3 mission to mars subtle aries mars mm-hmm. i get it yeah i mean you know it's made by committee and that's you know one that i think just fun enough to get through there's there are some other good code names suggest or project names suggest in this movie. We open on Mars. Mark Watney and his team members are gathering data on the surface. Um, when they get kind of a indication of a high, they get a report of a high wind warning. They're basically told to like, hey, pack it up, we're out of here. It's going to knock over your only way to get back to like the orbiting control ship. So they got their asses to Mars, and now they got to get their asses off of Mars. <laughs> they got to get get to the Mav. That started better in my head. Anyway, um, as they're as they're heading back to the the Mav, the Mars Ascent vehicle, again, great names all around. Uh, Watney gets knocked over by a flying satellite dish and uh, is presumed dead. The crew makes the kind of difficult decision to to leave leave their wounded man behind, presumed dead, and continue on. And um, I know you had some problems about like why don't why don't they just like tether up in this like yeah there there's some things it's like you know on Earth in the Arctic conditions you know we have guidelines and we tether people to each other so that if someone like so people can't get lost as long as they're following the person ahead of them mm-hmm. basically and like uh, like it just. It's not unreasonable to assume that they wouldn't do that. It just, to me, like NASA thinks of everything now. Yeah. So, and there's, I, when I was rewatching it and writing some of these notes, um, there is like a brief, like line in the movie. Like if you get separated, lock onto my GPS signal and, and, you know, we'll meet back at the ship. So they, they have a contingency for if they get separated, but they're not, I think also part of like Watney being able to get, knocked off into this into this dust storm you know is facilitated by the fact that they don't tether together right but there is there is a throwaway line they make some attempt at explaining it but i only caught it on like my third watch basically 
so back on back on Earth, uh, Watney is declared dead by um, Teddy Sanders, played by Jeff Daniels. He's given a funeral. I did look because I know we we had talked about during the viewing. We talked about oh, he's getting military rights at this funeral. Yeah, um, I looked it up, and he is not military. So I'm I'm right. Also, similarly confused as to why. Is this some weird like lead into Starship Troopers here? Like everyone's a military, and you know, would you like to know more? Service guarantees citizenship. <laughs> Maybe that's what all Watney was in it for. You know, was his citizenship. And then they posthumously gave him military honors and citizenship. It all, yeah, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. Also, this would uh, historically make. Uh, uh, Mark Watney, the first human to die in space. True. Uh, as an interesting side note, uh, during the Apollo 11 uh, lunar landing, NASA wasn't very confident in the success of the mission uh, to the point where they had a contingency that was actually covered in the most recent First Man movie with uh, Ryan Gosling. Maybe we'll cover that later as Neil Armstrong, mm-hmm. that they had a pre- a pre-written uh, eulogy for the members of the the uh, lunar lander, like that. And anymore, when people will look up, they will see a part of humanity on that moon, on that heavenly body. Yeah, it's kind of uh, uh, really a little haunting how close that was to being a disaster. Nice. My parents that were alive for the uh, actual you know, broadcast of it, uh, when they, there's a countdown that's going on as you're hearing, you know, Neil Armstrong and, uh, the rest of the lamb crew, uh, lamb crew, uh, going down and people thought it was in a time to touchdown. It was actually how many seconds left of fuel they had. <laughs> and it was going at like 10, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one touchdown. <laughs> It just happened to coincide like that was the fuel he used. And had he so had uh, Neil Armstrong messed up, they would have been dead. Yeah, I'm I'm honestly surprised with like, like as much as we didn't know going into space, like the fact that we haven't lost anyone in space is like no small miracle. Well, I mean, there there have been casualties, of course, there was the Apollo one uh plugs out test accident that killed all three astronauts. There was multiple uh, Soviet casualties, uh, famously uh, on the Vostok 4, I want to say. I can't recall. It was Yuri Gagarin's best friend Mm -hmm. who Gagarin and him were kind of like, they both knew that the rocket was not good. And so they were like trying to one up each other and use their clout to make sure that the other guy didn't die in the, the attempt. But um, eventually Gagarin's friend won, uh, won in heavy air quotes because they, they, he knew it was a one-way trip. And you can actually listen to the auto recordings of him coming back in on this rocket that's falling apart under him. It's dangerous and um, he knew it was a death sentence. And basically, he's cursing the entire program and the people that forced the the rocket to go up. And he was so sure that it was going to fail that he demanded an open casket funeral. (laughs) 
and there's literal pictures out there of the charred corpse of this ash, this cosmonaut Jeez. Um, that state officials had to look at. And basically it's like, you did this. This was avoidable and you killed me. You have to look at your own shame. Right. And there's there's been incidents like Earth Earthbound incidents of, you know, rockets or space shuttles, you know, having catastrophic failures on the launch pad or like the Challenger exploded. You know, the Challenger and then um, uh, Discovery, Discovery, you know, blew up on reentry, which I I still count that as in Earth because it mm-hmm. wasn't in space that the accident happened. Sure. Yeah. The, but the fact that like no one's been yeah, struck in a dust storm by a loose satellite. Yeah. And everyone's fine on the ISS. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I shouldn't say that. There's actually someone from my uh, hometown. Well, not hometown in my current town, not hometown uh, from the current place that I live is up on the ISS. Yeah. Pretty exciting. It's pretty, pretty exciting stuff. Anyway, we've digressed <laughs> enough. Watney is presumed dead. Yeah. The first, the first person to die, I guess on an alien planet in this, in this timeline. But, um, turns out he's not dead. <laughs> turns out that, um, his, uh, his puncture, um, Sealed up enough in his suit, presumably because of blood or the fact that he never removed it. But he's and then he was also partially buried. True, but he survives, makes it back, and now he's got to embark on this quest to survive until he can be rescued. You know, he's got he's got several issues. Like his oxygen will be okay, his power's okay, but he's got to make food. So he kind of he kind of goes through these cycles of like, and this is the main like conflict for the movie is this very much like man versus environment and it yeah it starts out like my my criticism for this movie is my main criticism is that he kind of like builds stuff and then inevitably it breaks and you go through like a lot of cycles of of this and i feel like towards the end it's just kind of like all right you know what's the problem gonna be now Right. It's it. It's nothing that goes wrong or he doesn't have. He sciences the shit out of a whole bunch of problems. And then just random accidents are, ca- are major causes for setbacks. I feel like the eighth time you watch something that like he built fails, it's it's kind of old hat. And I kind of wish that there was something else that could be interrupted or that would like interrupt the movie and like um, provide a different source of conflict. Well, you know, logistical failure. Um, yeah. Is the source of conflict in this film, you know, he, we got to get, you know, supplies to him, you know, and so we don't do all the checks that we normally do. And then the, mm-hmm. the, the, something liquefies and, you know, shifts the weight of the, the, the center of gravity. It's like, you know, I got the feeling that these problems are just made up for the movie because I think that they've already been solved. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like we do routine resupplies to the ISS on those rockets. Like just adding more, they would know what they can and can't do and could and couldn't put on it. Yeah. And it, it has to be an interesting story and it has to be engaging. Of course, you have to have conflict. It's going to come from somewhere, but it just feels like we kind of return to the same well over and over. Yeah, I mean, it's not like he could. St- I mean, he could have started fighting space aliens. I mean, it wouldn't be 
out of the realm of possibility for the director of the film to put something right. like that in. I was gonna make it. I was gonna make a joke like, "Oh, I don't know if that's in Ridley Scott's wheelhouse, but you beat me to yeah. it. Dang it! Yeah. Be more original. <laughs> I I strive to be. So Watney starts setting up his his habitat for uh, survival, and uh, in the process, cleans off the solar panels, moves the rover. And uh, all these things are discovered by NASA on a routine flyby, signaling to them that Watney has survived. So NASA knows Watney, I think, doesn't know at this point, but he he starts uh, farming shit potatoes anyways. Because <laughs> luckily he's a botanist. He's the best botanist on the planet. That's true. Mars, that is. <laughs> Lots of... Uh, it's technically true. The best kind of true. Exactly. Um, so he uh, he starts farming his potatoes. And then, you know, like we were saying, like, oh, his potato farm blows up. So he kind of he kind of goes... Or sorry, he nearly blows himself up first, trying to make oxygen out of fire. And, you know, it's it's a pretty good scene. No, he's tr- trying to make water That's out of right. fire Sorry. by separating the, the hydrogen, <laughs> which he, he points out that nothing bad has ever happened in the history of human achievement with hydrogen. <laughs> oh, the humanity. <laughs> oh, the huge manatee. <laughs> it's one of the first images I ever saved from the internet. So he, he begins work kind of, you know, he's got plans, he's got machinations, he starts work on his rover to extend the distance. He pulls, digs up radioactive material to act as his heater. He's, uh, everything seems to, he's, pieces are falling into place. So, you know, now it's time for the catastrophic failure. And, and in this case, it comes when uh, a worn out airlock basically blows his entire farm out into, onto Mars. And so, you know, I have a problem with this from just a, uh just a, like a, a point of view. It's like, wouldn't NASA have designed the hab to have the airlock way far away and be a lot more, you know, fail safe basically. So that like that, you know, they would design it for, to be, it would be over-designed to last longer than it was supposed to. Yeah. I mean, just in case, because t- that's all NASA is. Like I, I understand the need for drama and the need for things to happen, the need for setbacks to occur so that you understand that, that this man is isolated alone and very close to dying at every sec, every second. But at the same time, you know, NASA does its best not to make these mistakes. Right. And so again, it goes into the thing that the things that happen are just random accidents rather than, you know, something happening. Yeah. And to, and to be fair to fictional timeline, NASA you know, they didn't exactly set aside a spot for potato farming. And right. um, I, I get that he just used the best space available to and him. And like now that I think about it, and I can't tell if this is my idea or if this is what actually like was referenced in the book, but he did have an explosion in that same room that may have weakened the seals as well. Uh, I mean, he has the explosion when the, the his first uh, thing with separating molecules doesn't go as planned. It's just a, a, like a fire, a little bit of fireball. Yeah. I mean, it throws him back. <laughs> There's, Yeah. But again, movie, but drama, all the, all the stuff that you need to make a, a compelling script. So this kind of pushes Watney, this compresses Watney's timelines um, because suddenly all this food he had to survive till, you know, 
a rescue mission could reach him is kind of out the window. I think we skipped over it, but by this time he is communicating now with NASA through. Yes. Via a hexadecimal grid system from an old uh, Mars Rover that JPL launched. You get a quick uh, little history of JPL that they were Caltech students that like built rocket fuel in their spare time and like, they, like an explosion occurred, but rather than, you know, punish them, the students were told to keep going with it, basically. And so and thus JPL was born. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is around the time when uh, Watney's resupply mission fails. Like you mentioned, the the shifting and liquidization of of components inside the ship that put it off balance because they skipped safety checks to make a launch window, basically. So this is when NASA reaches out to China um, in a... Now, China reaches out to NASA. The Chinese space program reaches out to the NASA space program. Oh, right, right, right. And you, you get the scene where the, the head of the, the Chinese space program um, is asking, you know... Why, have, why hasn't NASA contacted us? It's like, well, they don't know we have this rocket that's capable of doing this. It's like, well, they're at, you know, we can't let this be a, a political governments thing. This has to be a, a space program to space program thing. And so they they back channel it and the, the Chinese team, you know, gets their rocket ready and they, they launch the rocket and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So that's that's their mission to resupply the, uh, the Hermes. Is, is what they use the Chinese rockets for. And then, yeah, Rich Purnell comes up with, with his plan. Slingshot, Mitch Henderson secretly sends it to the Hermes 3 crew because... Mitch Henderson, played by Sean Bean. Yeah, surprisingly, doesn't die in this movie. And there's a great Lord of the Rings reference in this movie where he's like exasperatedly telling these people what the, the council of, you know, <laughs> uh, at um, Rivendale is. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I've been there. I know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Following this chain of, of great plan mission names. Um, I think they name it after Elrond or something. Elrond. Yeah. Or it, uh, it, uh, roughly, roughly along those lines. Um, this brings up another problem I have with just kind of the way that this is structured. It's very much talking down to the audience a bit. Like, mm-hmm. This is a space thing. This is what a slingshot is. I'm explaining it to all these NASA people that have probably studied the space program since they were old enough to know what space is. Right. Yeah. And- it's like a slingshot was used to save the Apollo 13 crew. It would be kind of in NASA's wheelhouse of things they would know are a possibility. Right. And you get that you get that scene with like Donald Glover, like or you know, Rich Purnell, whatever moving people around the room and talking down to them. And it's just like, again, it, I, I feel it's Ridley Scott, not having faith in the audience to understand this stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can't speak about the book. If he explains what a slingshot is in the book. Yeah. I, I didn't reread it for the podcast. So my memories would be based on something I read like back in 2015. But, um, you know, he, he talks down to these like NASA, you know, they're not the director of NASA, the director of the mission and the head of mission control. Right. They may not be. I mean, actually they are probably rocket scientists. They literally are. <laughs> I, at least two of them are rocket scientists. Yeah, I know they're not actively developing rockets. They lead those programs, but 
they're not dumb people. It's for the audience. You're absolutely correct. But yeah, it's kind of a weird plan. You know, I can't remember if they actually, I don't think anyone like does the famous, like, whoa, whoa, one more time in English, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Thankfully they don't do that. No one, no one drops that, uh, that movie trope, but it's close. Yes. So the reason for the secrecy and sending the Hermes through three crew, the plan for this slingshot maneuver is because Sanders, Jeff Bridges character just vetoes it, as you said. So they have to give it to him in secret. They, then the Hermes three crew finds it and uh, basically goes dark disables NASA's overrides of their mission system and performs the slingshot maneuver on their themselves. <laughs> um, they say in the movie, uh, Rich Fresnel is a steely eyed missile man kind of as a, that's like the one communication they send after that goes dark. And uh, that is actually a reference to an event during an Apollo 12 mission. And it's basically a high compliment bestowed to people within NASA who have solved like, these impossible problems under the most tense conditions. So kind of a nice, do you know what the uh, issue on Apollo 12 was? Cause I, I, unfortunately my, my, it's been a while since I've watched from earth to the moon. So I don't remember all the different Apollos. Um, they were launching the Apollo 12 mission during a, a thunderstorm and lightning actually struck the rocket twice on the second strike. It knocked the, eight ball attitude indicator in the rocket offline. It continued to fly correctly, but they were going to have to like scrub the mission because they couldn't get good telemetry data. But the electrical environment and consumables manager, Ecom John Aaron made the call and he said, uh, flight Ecom try switching SE to aux yeah, I, now now that you're talking about this, I know that I know this story. Yeah, so that was a a like one off weird situation that he had encountered like during a training incident, or sorry, um, Alan and, Bean had encountered it during a training incident, switched it, um, and that completely reset and and re repowered all the the primary systems. Yeah, so they were able to continue their mission. And he got the reputation of steely-eyed missile man. So it's it's kind of carried on in NASA tradition beyond that. And it's kind of like a cool inside nod. That I'll admit I didn't know. I had to look it up during the movie. But that's, that's where it comes from. Gotcha. And uh, as a kind of a postscript to the astronaut I was talking about that died, and it was a Soyuz 1 reentry parachute failure. Uh, the astronaut's name was Vladimir M. Kamarov. Good, good to know the name. So back to the Martian story after they perform this slingshot, they're resupplied by the Chinese rocket powered mission and uh, head back to Mars. Watney has sort of been on this, this journey in his Rover, you know, heated by his radiation down to the last of his food, lost incredible amounts of weight is, you know, surviving on these solar panels. He has to pack and unpack every 36 hours or whatever it is. Yeah, but he does reach the Mav, the other Mars ascent vehicle that was sent there ahead of time for like the Ares four mission. But he's got a problem in that it's too heavy. So he tosses everything out, replaces the nose cone with a tarp and claims to become a space pirate when he commandeers the vehicle. (laughs) 
Yes, which uh, Mission Control at NASA then has the same conversation that, yeah, he he would be a space <laughs> pirate because it's a maritime law and he's stealing something that isn't his and all yeah, that. There are, there are articles written on whether or not, not that's not true. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't shatter the image for myself, so I chose not to read them. I mean... Captain John Watney, space pirate, <laughs> sounds pretty good. Uh, actually, pushes glasses up. No, it's Mark Watney. Um, actually, <laughs> so we're not done with our our inevitability of everything going wrong in this movie. There is a very tense scene where they have to maneuver to intercept Watney. They're going too fast. Like the crew of the Hermes has to basically create another, this time intentional explosion in space where they put together a sugar bomb to blow an airlock to slow them down to match speeds. Watney has to eventually puncture suit uh, holes in his suit to become Iron Man fly to the fly to the Hermes. He's he's rescued. He gets aboard. Everyone tells him he stinks because he hasn't showered in forever. Uh, Over a year now. I believe long time at the very least during his entire trip to the other Mars ascent vehicle at the yeah at the very least so they so he'd be smelling <laughs> ripe yeah and that's to get off on one more tangent it's something I always think about and that is not an original idea but something that I always think about when people bring up time travel is like I'm gonna travel to the 1800s and it's like do you know what bathing habits were like in the 1800s like the past has okay 18 I'm gonna go to 1800s Japan where they obsessively <laughs> bathed. I see you're a man of culture as well, but people who want to travel to like 18th century America or 18th century Europe, there's a certain smell. I think that would be absolutely pervasive in major cities. Fair enough. It's still pervasive in some major cities in Europe. That's that's also true. Also, if you've ever been on a subway in any city or been to a convention. It smells like it smells vaguely like piss and stale sweat. We can only imagine that's exactly what Watney smelled like. Smelled like the past, like the 18th century. Throw in feces and livestock. Mm -hmm. Fragrant. I can't imagine why Febreze is not all over this. And you wonder why people put their pockets full of posies back in the day. So Watney reunites with his crew. They all hug. They're happy. He really wanted to be the Iron Man and wanted all the statues to be about (laughs) him. That is important to know. I think given the choice, he probably wouldn't do it again, though. We get a brief like montage of, of what happened to people. Like generally everyone pretty much lands on their feet. Sean Bean retires to the golf course. Watney becomes an instructor at NASA. Uh, some of the crew. I got the sense that he was an instructor at like uh, the, the astronaut training program, mm-hmm. which by the way, those astronauts are way too young to be training. Yeah. <laughs> Most astronauts are in their, you know, late twenties at earliest. Yeah. You need a certain. And those look like. That looked like it was like a call, like a, a freshman college, collegiate level class. Yeah. Thinking back to some of the people I took freshman college undergrad courses with, those people are not cut out to be astronauts. But he he gets an instructor position. Some of the crew goes back to Mars on return missions, and generally everyone lives happily ever after. Well, I just think that uh, Mark Watney gets cock blocked because the movie is leading you to think that the uh, that him and the captain might have a thing, but it no it turns out the captain, as well as her love of disco, also loves her husband, who is never mentioned until he is literally seen once. I never, 
I never got that same feeling. Well, maybe it's just me shipping the fuck out of Jessica Chastain and, and uh, Matt Damon. I mean, I'm not here to ship shame, so you live your best life. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all in all, it's an enjoyable film that uh, was it kind of forgotten during the awards season? Um, or did it get anything? That is an excellent question. One that I am fully prepared to answer and not frantically looking up as we speak. No, we are the <laughs> pinnacle of of organized and professional here on the Match Cut Podcast. It was nominated for seven Oscars. Um, did not win any, but was nominated. It got the. It was nominated for Motion Picture of the Year, Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role for Matt Damon. Writing, Best Achievement in Sound Mixing, Achievement in Sound Editing, Achievement in Visual Effects, and Achievement in Production Design. So a lot of a lot of those awards that happen outside of the main Oscars. So you that may be where like oh it was possibly snubbed was coming from. But yeah, I mean I don't I don't think it's the best film ever made, but at least it got its nods. Yeah, it got its nods. I I think you know to skip ahead to some of my conclusions coming later. I think it's a really like enjoyable watch even if it even if it does kind of present the same problems over and over so that will do it for our thoughts on the martian uh join us back here in a second for our thoughts on the revenant The next film we're talking about, obviously, is The Revenant. It is a 2015 film uh, written uh, by Mark L. Smith and Alejandro Inarietu, based in part on a book by Michael Pionke and directed by Inarietu. Mark Smith has written for various uh, horror series, uh, Vacancy, Vacancy 2, and a lot of poorly uh, reviewed things. Your words, not mine. Uh, and Aaronetu has directed many uh, critically and commercially acclaimed films, Birdman, Babel, 21 Grams. Uh, I saw this, as I was saying before, uh, as part of a double feature I did for myself of The Hateful Eight and The Revenant. I was really looking forward to it, having previously really enjoyed Birdman and Michael Keaton's turn in that and just the overall direction of the film. So speaking of the film, it opens up with Hugh Glass, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, speaking to his son, Hawk, played by Forrest Goodluck, which is an interesting name for the character that he plays, even though that's his personal name. Um, Their uh, home is burned, and Hugh Glass's wife is killed, and he tells Hawk that you must fight as long as he can grab breath, kind of a theme of the film it then cuts to the present with hawk and glass hunting after an elk and the present in this case is the 1820s 1810s something somewhere around there they are away from their fur trapper camp led by and being led by captain andrew henry played by the lovely dom hall gleason yeah uh, who will basically always be hux to me now i think from right. uh, from star wars yeah, uh, he's he's kind of that guy in your in your mind. I mean, you've seen him in so many other things, and yet all you can see him as is Hux. Yeah, this this movie was a lot of me going, "Oh, hey, it's that guy." Basically, any of the main cast members are, "Oh, hey, that guy." Yeah, 
you get a, a, a beautiful tracking shot of these kind of like marshy treed woods area where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is uh, tracking that elk before he takes the shot and, and kills it. When he takes the shot, it cuts to um, the trapping camp uh, with Fitzgerald kind of in charge, played by none other than, oh gosh, I'm forgetting his name. <laughs> Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy, the lovely Tom Hardy, a man of a thousand faces and um, half of them covered by masks. Yes. At least half of his roles are covered by masks. I mean, I think he's the only actor who can command such a screen presence with just his eyebrows in uh, Dunkirk. Yeah, definitely. Which I want to say also has Dom Gleason in it, but it doesn't. Mm, disappointing it is disappointing um (laughs) i remember um before we get too far from it right at the opening this film i think i had been watching like a lot of like video game trailers or something that day but my first dumb idiot brain thought i remember you telling me this (laughs) the opening in that river i'm just like wow that is a really well rendered river (laughs) it's almost (laughs) like they were they they went there and and filmed a river (laughs) yeah um, I just looking at that water, like ripple down off the branches. I was like, wow, that's really well done. Oh, wait, I'm an idiot. It, it is really well done because it's really done. Um, <laughs> uh, this opening sequence is actually really good. It sets really an interesting tone and kind of draws you in with the, the struggle that you, that you are, are set up with between, uh, you know, man versus nature versus hostile natives kind of mm-hmm. thing. It's, if this was another time period, this would like star John Wayne and have like a love interest that was alive that they had to save. And yeah, the, the natives would be one note, you know, savages, basically. Right. For, um, fortunately, we've moved on to a little more nuanced representation. Yeah. Now it's the French are bastards, which uh, I'm not going to agree or disagree with. Viva la revolution and go good on you. Yellow vest protesters. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, anyway, this movie kind of wastes no time really getting, getting into the thick of it. You, you, get a, like, you, you get a brief moment establishing Fitzgerald's character as kind of like a bit of a taskmaster and a bit of a, a loud mouth. You know, mm-hmm. we ain't, t- we ain't doing any 30 pound bundles. We're doing 50 pound bundles. <laughs> I will, I will say that, that, um, impression is charitably understandable that was a problem i had in the theater and thankfully we were able to put um subtitles on because half of what uh, tom hardy says as fitzgerald is lost in the audio mixing it is it is not clear um yeah what he's saying half the time and then the other half the time you have Leonardo dicaprio being just very quiet as this like very reserved individual mm-hmm. and it just it's hard to hear the the there was a interesting uh, controversy with this film when it was made that you know because Inarinetu was so dedicated to filming during the golden hour they could only film for you know a few hours a day the they were out in the middle of the actual wilderness filming this in the Canadian and uh, American wilderness to get the the right look that he wanted and the right natural lighting, because that's something that this film does is it is all natural lighting. Yeah. Which, and I, I think it's maybe not something that's like immediately obvious, but definitely like hearing that and looking back on it, like you can definitely, it, it comes through. 
Yeah, it it does come through, but I think it only really helps a few scenes. But we're 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 getting ahead of ourselves a bit here. Um, mm-hmm. Shortly after, there's a conversation at the the trapper camp of someone that's gone missing, looking for Glass, which is uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, Hugh Glass, and he's out hunting. Then all of a sudden, the person that has missing is come back, and he's been scalped, and he's naked. And you get full on naked shot <laughs> uh, right before they get a. Uh, we get a a tracking single shot take of an attack by the re the Arikara Arikara. Yeah, Arikara is how I would pronounce it. Not saying that's right, but uh, I'm just gonna go I fucking Japanese it. with it. Arikara. <laughs> I mean, that's an interpretation. <laughs> uh, which are uh, referred to by the trappers as the re. Mm-hmm. The re attack uh, viciously and without mercy, killing uh, a fair many of the fur trappers as they try to make their way to a boat. Um, it's actually a really thrilling scene and really pumped me up for the rest of this film. Uh, unfortunately, to very little payoff. Yeah. I, I, I felt like it was going to be this very much, you know, this ticking clock of the, the rear always on us, the rear always on us. And while you get the sense from the characters that that's how they feel, the actual movie does not push that as what's going on. Um, yeah, they t- they kind of disappear for a little while. and Well, yeah, they reappear like whenever it's... is convenient. Mm-hmm. But after they escape on the boat, there's um, very much some tension in the ranks because Hugh Glass has a half Indian kid. They were just attacked by, excuse me, half native kid. And they were just attacked by, you know, another tribe leading to accusations by Fitzgerald that they're selling them out and they're trying to take all the furs for themselves. We cut to the, later on, we cut to the re-Indians trading with French fur trappers that were mentioned previously uh, for horses and gunpowder, which the French do not want to give up the horses. Obviously they just want to give them whiskey and gunpowder. Yeah. Take Uh, the stuff we got too much of, but we're going to need these horses, which uh, the French finally relent after insulting them in French, not realizing that, the re chief can speak French pretty fluently, actually. <laughs> yeah, there's a. It, I I enjoy I enjoy that that kind of trope in movies where oh, just, yeah. I someone just also responds. Speak this language. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a pet favorite of mine. It's always a good comeuppance because whenever there's a character in a film that's talking in a language, trying to insult someone, it's like they're never doing it because they don't know how to say the words they want to say. They're purposely doing it to be a dick. Yeah. It's never them hemming and hawing like, Oh, I forget the word. What is it? It's, it's just like, can you believe these idiot, you know, whatever jokes on you, buddy. (laughs) That's where you're wrong. Bucko. (laughs) Um, we then cut back to um, Glass scouting ahead uh, of the main uh, trapper party when all of a sudden he is attacked by a big old bear. <laughs> um, this actually brings up a key theme in the film. The uh, native chief is looking for his daughter that the French have told him the Americans have taken. Mm-hmm. And the bear only attacks Hugh Glass because it is protecting its cubs. And yeah. Glass 
wants to protect his son, which is a theme that is established earlier that, you know, he, it's something that the, the other men talk about that, you know, glass apparently shot an American officer to protect it. You know, some, something happened and no one yeah, really knows why. And obviously he doesn't talk about it. Yeah. Kind of left purposely ambiguous. But this this is kind of the scene, you know, that I that I had heard of prior to watching the movie. And I think kind of that was the same story for everyone. It's like, oh, it's the revenant comma in which Leonardo DiCaprio fights a bear. The the crazier thing about this that uh, I didn't mention is that this is all based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Hugh Glass was a real man. The unfortunately, what they added to the story is the his character having a son and not just being a survival uh, a survival story of man against nature. But he was actually attacked by a bear and won. He <laughs> he killed the bear and 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 lived to talk about it. Yeah. Um, Eventually, the rest of the, the 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 party finds him. That after the bear has fallen on top of him, they get the bear off, and he's been you know mauled nearly dead to dead. Uh, you you yeah. fight a bear with eighteen twenties musket and knife, you, you ain't coming out ahead of that necessarily. <laughs> right. I was um, really surprised at kind of like how early this happened because I figured like you know man fights bear. That's some like climax end of the movie stuff. Yeah. What was that? Um, what was that? Uh, movie by Shot Werner in the Dark, Herzog. the Gray. No, Werner Herzog, the uh, the the Bear Man guy who guy got oh, eaten Grizzly by the bear. Man or something? Grizzly Man. Yeah, the, yeah. There we go. Because like I know, well, at least for me, like I was thinking of like the Gray that movie with Liam Neeson, where spoiler, he fights a bunch of wolves. It's not really a spoiler. That was in the trailers. Yeah, he puts the fucking little mini bottles on his hands and he's going to yeah. fucking fist fight, like, Kumite fight the wolves. That looked awesome. <laughs> yeah, I never so seen I, that, I but thought... Apparently that movie is actually a very, very, very empowering movie for individuals, you know, to live life to the fullest, I guess. Yeah, maybe we'll cover it someday. I th- feel like we say that about every movie, but... <laughs> I mean, every every movie's on the table until it's not, basically, That's right? true. As, as long as it, you can find a good It's Schrodinger's future podcast episodes <laughs> world of possibilities but yeah again i was i was just surprised to see it happen like oh well, like we're 25 minutes in this movie like where does it go from here he's I, already I, fought the bear <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet basically is like uh this movie like the history of russia is and then things got worse for uh, hugh glass <laughs> Glass is put on a stretcher, and uh, unfortunately, he was their guide through this area because he is familiar with the land, and the rest of the party isn't uh, so competent, shall we say? Uh, they keep, right. you know, they they show you through the film that uh, through the next few scenes that he is a burden on them, and that they it's hurting them more than it's helping them trying to carry him, even though he's alive. And so, Dom Hall Gleason offers a monetary reward to stay with glass until he gets better or until he dies. You know, you stay with him, you'll, you'll get, uh, you'll get some money from the, the company I work for and I'll personally guarantee it. Yeah. It uh, Jim Bridger, like- uh, played by Will Poulter, uh, and Hawk both volunteer, obviously out of Will Bridger, uh, or excuse me, Jim Bridger is established to be kind of friendly with Hawk and very sympathetic. Um, mm-hmm. They both agree, but Dom Hall Gleason's character... What's his character's name? Uh, Fitzgerald. General Hux, got it. No, <laughs> Fitzgerald is Tom Hardy. Uh, oh, General right. Hux 
tells them that they need uh, at least three men. And so Andrew Henry is his name. Captain Andrew Henry tells them that uh, (laughs) they need at least three to which after a monetary reward is offered, John Fitzgerald chooses also to stay behind only because Hawk and Jim Bridger choose to give up their shares to Fitzgerald to keep him behind, which is something like $300 in 1820 money. I think they started at 75 and then bumped it up to a hundred. I feel like Bridger and Hawk, I think kind of get along. Like Hawk is kind of like the new blood, you know, he's very sympathetic to the natives. Um, Hawk Hawk is himself half native. Yeah. But Um, uh, uh, Bridger being kind of the youngest um, besides Hawk in the like hunting party, I think kind of brings that, that new young perspective of like, Hey, maybe we don't just hate people right off the bat because of where they come from. Yeah. And you know, uh, Bridger and uh, captain uh, general Hux uh, both, you know, agree that they wouldn't have gotten nearly as far as they had without glass and Hawk basically that, you know, we, we don't know the land and it's very, very easily illustrated. So then, uh, then we get to, uh, you know, Hawk, Bridger, and Fitzgerald looking over Glass as he is feverish and you know dying, and it's either gonna his fever is either gonna break or he, it's gonna you know it's gonna kill him. Fitzgerald, like, there's something wrong with him on like a many levels. <laughs> uh, you see him take off his headband a few times, and he's lice infested. And mm-hmm. also he was like scalped at one point and survived. Yeah. If it's, if it's not actual physical damage, he's at least like emotionally damaged. Yeah. He's definitely not all there emotionally, which you, you see later on as Bridger is etching a design on Hugh Glass's canteen. And mm-hmm. You hear it from uh, from Fitzgerald's perspective of just like the most nails on chalkboard sound that you can imagine when it's really only a small etching sound where right. it's just like amplified to the uh, it's turned up to 11 on him to a point where when he tells you when he tells Bridger to stop scratching out that thing and he stops you as the audience member are relieved because of the audio mixing there. Yeah, you you said it was pretty intense in theater like I watched it on a computer with with headphones, but. Yeah, um, it was it was one of those things. It's like I was relieved when the the etching stopped. Right. Um, so you get a you get a sense that there's something not quite right with him, uh, which we see in a not, not much later uh, a scene where Fitzgerald offers to put glass out of his misery. You know, saying very you know truthfully, but in a dickish way that you know you're not doing your boy any favors or us any favors if you keep holding on here the re are going to catch up to us and we're all going to die so i can end it for you i can give you a christian burial i can make sure you know that your ta- that your son survives all you have to do is blink <laughs> yeah cuz at this point glass is still like nonverbal basically he, yeah he he's he's delirious. nonverbal smallly delirious and you see his eyes look at him when he says this. And it's like, are you fucking kidding me? The <laughs> eye expression. Yeah. And, and so he stares at him for as long as possible as Fitzgerald is like speaking into his face, telling him this, just, just blank, just blank. It's just one blank. It'll all be over. I'll keep it easy on you. And yeah. uh, eventually he of course blinks because 
it's human nature to blink. Right. Um, as he is trying to mercy kill a man who doesn't want to be mercy killed, Hawk starts trying, uh, walks in and interrupts him and tries to get Bridger to come help him. Fitzgerald then guts mercilessly Hawk's bu- Hawk and kills him right in front of the infirm glass. Right. Uh, and dumps the body like in a ditch over there. Uh, right. Bridger returns from the 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 creek and uh, asks what happened to Hawk. Must have run. Uh, must be off somewhere. And later in the night, Fitzgerald wakes up Bridger to tell him that the the rear coming. I saw him down by the river. We got to go now. You know, there, there's nothing we can do. You know, Hawk must have run off already. Um, yeah. Bridger is incensed that they're trying to leave Glass behind and is like insisting that they carry him. To which Tom Hardy then throws Glass. Basically, it's really endearing you to Tom Hardy's Fitzgerald character in this entire <laughs> sequence. If yeah. you didn't already love him, you're going to just empathize with him entirely for this sequence. Throws him off the, 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 the litter stretcher that he's on and starts dragging the, the wounded... <laughs> infected body of glass across the ground before digging him a shallow grave and dumping him in it and then running off with Bridger. Bridger, of course, feels horrible, is apologizing profusely when this is happening and leaves glass the canteen that he was etching for him, as well as the the uh, bear claw necklace of the bear that glass had killed. Yeah, right, right. Um, glass eventually becomes somewhat ambulatory and uh, becomes uh, powered under his own power, uh, finds his boy's body, but then he actually has to run because the rear there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We find out later, I mean, to skip ahead a little bit, like you get the feeling that maybe Fitzgerald's not completely on the up and up. Like, you know, we find out later he made up the story about the rear. There's some doubts and, uh, but yeah, then they actually start coming and Glass has to, uh, as best he can, hoof it. Yeah, which is a scene where he throws himself in a river. Basically, everything that can go wrong for uh, Hugh Glass starts going wrong. And you get a few more one shots of him, you know, like floating down the river and like crawling. And it's honestly, it, it was a bit excruciating. And I was a bit mm-hmm. relieved when it cut back to uh, uh, Fitzgerald and Bridger with Fitzgerald, uh, you know, saying we got to keep moving or actually not having any real sense of urgency anymore now that they're away from glass and Bridger questioning him on it. Like, we got to keep moving. We don't think we put enough ground between us and the re to which uh, Fitzgerald uh, mistakenly uh, recalls the wrong number of re. Uh, This really, really worries Bridger to the point where he points a rifle at uh, Fitzgerald, like, like, really upset that he made him leave glass to die. But Fitzgerald talks him down somewhat, takes the rifle away from Bridger, points it at, uh, at Bridger and actually pulls the trigger. Mm-hmm. He was perfect. He was a hundred percent willing to kill another person just for questioning him. Yeah. Uh, the only reason Bridger doesn't die is because the rifle wasn't loaded. Yeah. Bridger saved by his own. I don't know. I don't want to say an aptitude. I'm not going to say that he necessarily intended to kill Fitzgerald. Maybe he knew the rifle was unloaded, but yeah, saved by his own 
lack of preparation keeping an unloaded gun. Yeah. You never um, go into battle with an untested weapon. <laughs> these engravings, they serve no tackle. Anyway. <laughs> uh, they continue on and eventually rejoin uh, the Dom Hogley's and General Hux, Captain General Hux at the fort uh, that mm-hmm. they were making their way to. And uh, Fitzgerald actually kind of makes Bridger culpable because Bridger was going to tell the truth until uh, Fitzgerald starts talking him up and, you know, saying that, you know, he really, really uh, held, you know, held his own, was, you know, uh, acted, you know, really honorably the whole time and also telling the best lies of the movies. We gave him a good Christian burial. Uh, We buried him, you know, the proper death and all that. It's like. We, we literally saw you do none of those things. And dumped him in a shit. shallow grave, covered him with a cup of dirt, <laughs> ran off. Ran off after <laughs> killing his son and stealing his rifle. Right. <laughs> we then cut back to Hugh Glass, who, uh, after floating on the river sometime, finds a herd of buffalo. And um, is just kind of enjoying the majesty of them. When he sees someone kill a buffalo, he... Goes over to talk to him. It turns out it is a friendly native of the same tribe his wife and son was. Um, yeah, the Pawnee. Yeah, friendly Pawnee. He offers him the uh, bear claw necklace as trade for the food that he so desperately needs. They then yep. eat raw meat together. <laughs> um, right, share and- some share some gizzards. Or I guess the buffalo don't have gizzards, but buffalo guts. They, they, they share some, you know, buffalo meat, uh, uh, and he finally gets a, a, a little bit of a break with this uh, Pawnee, uh, this Pawnee, and the Pawnee assists him, you know, gets him on a horse. They they kind of travel together. It becomes a bit of a road movie for a few scenes here. Yeah, um, very briefly. They share the uh, the snowflake catching on their tongues. Yeah, some levity uh, for the film that, you know, not everything sucks in the frontier. Which the movie desperately needs after the really oppressive, like, never-ending bleakness of the rest of the tone of the film. Right. There was a scene, um, before we get too far away from it, right where um, Glass jumps back into the river. He's hiding in, like, like kind of half a cave, right where he pulls the, like, fish out of the water and, like, starts eating yeah. it raw. That was the first time in the movie, like, the the action scenes, like, are basically all done with handheld cameras. Right. Or, you know, stabilized cam, uh, not, not like Jason Bourne steady handy cammed. Yeah. Steady cam. And it was right in that scene where he's kind of hiding in that like kind of rock area where the motion of the camera kind of took me out of the scene. I was like, Oh, this is a person holding a camera <laughs> walking around Leonardo DiCaprio. And it wasn't so much of an issue for me. Like when the, when the, um, Arikara first attacked in that opening scene. I, was, yeah. I felt like it fit really well, but for some reason during that scene, it re- that motion of that camera just kind of snapped me out of it. So, no, I, that I, out there. No worries. We almost skipped over a scene where Fitzgerald and uh, Bridger pass through uh, a, a Pawnee village, I believe, that has been attacked or something by. I think Fitzgerald has an idea of who it is because he served in the Texas army, which is currently undergoing its revolution right now. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a village that is attacked and Bridger 
leaves uh, food for a native woman that he finds, and he doesn't tell Fitzgerald is there. Again, establishing that Bridger is not an evil person, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how much of that is needed when you kind of like stand him next to Fitzgerald. Like he could just exist and you'll be like, all right, that's the better person. <laughs> Jim Hitler did nothing wrong. Fitzgerald, if you you know, or J- yeah. Jim John Fit- Hitler did nothing wrong. Fitzgerald, basically. <laughs> so that's just another uh, moment. Uh, again, a little bit more respite from the the Hugh Glass story. Uh, mm-hmm. We cut back to Glass as um, him and his pony uh, buddy are still traveling together. They, uh, his pony buddy uh, says to him that you know his body is poisoned, uh, and he's either going to die or going to you know survive through the poison and so he builds him a sweet a lean-to sweat lodge thing for him yeah and leaves him we we guess we assume that he left him in the night because you know his journey is going to take him you know on it's only a little while a little ways further after he is a little bit more healed up that oh no he's been uh hung he, he's dead he was he was killed in the night by the lovely french fur trappers <laughs> Who just have really shown themselves to be Fitzgerald's kind of people. Yeah. We also skipped over just a brief scene of like Glass's kind of own attempts to heal himself, which consisted of shoving gunpowder in his neck wound and like lighting it. Oh, yeah. Uh, which was hard to watch. His, yeah, cauterizing his own wounds. Uh, yeah. A lot of this film, when it's just Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, is hard to watch because of what they're putting the character through. Mm-hmm. But uh, Hugh Glass sees that uh, they have captured a native woman. It's an Arikara woman that is the daughter of the chief, actually, that you put two and two together. That the French told the uh, the Re that the Americans had her. And so they've been hunting them down mercilessly. And turns out they had her the whole time. Yeah. What? <laughs> People. Continuing what a the, bunch of bastards. <laughs> continuing the glowing characterization of the French in this time. <laughs> I don't sing the French national anthem. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for everyone for doing that. <laughs> he frees her and uh, they kill uh, a man that was going to relieve himself with her, shall we say, in a a, a polite euphemism for rape. Mm-hmm. I uh, think they, they, he, was he mid he was mid act I thought uh, he was I think he was about to and then glass puts a knife up to his neck yeah and gets his gun off him and by the way the horse he steals is actually uh, his um, Pawnee friend's horse so he's not actually stealing anything that oh, was stolen okay. it was stolen from uh, his Pawnee friend by the bastard Frenchman gotcha yeah he's got to um, get to the horse fence Hopefully get a good price for it. That'll be two dollars. Two whole dollars. <laughs> get that hat he's had his eye on for a while. But of course, ne- nothing goes good for Glass. And as he's getting the horse, you know, taken care of, the uh, French are like, Qu'est-ce que c'est? And uh, he has to run away. The uh, the the re uh, woman murders her would be. Assaulter, which is nice. I'm, I'm glad he gets his just desserts. In fact, most of the French get their just desserts in this film. So you know, yeah, it's a real them. let them eat cake situation. <laughs> it's a it's very karmatic. This film actually, yeah. it, it, 
in in comes a, a a fleeing scene where glass flees the the french on, under fire and 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 finally he's he's got a mode of transportation but things get more worse when uh <laughs> when the 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 re find glass and not knowing who he is start to try to kill him and so yeah. another one take uh, chase ensues where glass <laughs> Uh, is running away from uh, from the re and rides his new horse friend over a cliff. Straight Thelma and Louise is it. He, he Thelma and Louise is it, and you know no yah yeet or anything. Uh, <laughs> the horse uh, he has to put out of its misery. And I mean, Bridger's obli- Bridger's the millennial. If Bridger was there, he would have said it. Bridger would have said it. You're right. <laughs> he has to uh, go do a tauntaun. With the horse, you know, I thought they smelled bad on the outside. The jokes Uh, write themselves. Really, they do. Eventually, um, we cut back to the fort after the Tauntaun scene. And uh, Dom Hall Gleason, General Hux, and the men are like laughing and, you know, playing the fiddle as one did back in the day. But Fitzgerald is upset that he's not getting you know, a whole bunch of money because of, you know, all these pelts that are out there. And, you know, it's not my fault that the pelts weren't recovered. The, the re-attacked us. It's like, yeah, uh, to well, which, you paid to, me to get the pelts. I got the pelts. It's on yeah. you if they never made it to be sold. To which Captain General Hux replies that you spent a whole, you bought a whole bunch from the company store on this trip. You're actually in debt. And the money I paid you was paid out of my own personal coffers. It's, you know, but I don't have any more money because you were paid it. Yeah. This doesn't sit right with Fitzgerald. Eventually he does a bad thing. Uh, but uh, a Frenchman makes it to the fort and the the, the expedition in the, the fort realizes that you know, Hawk might be out there because the Frenchman has Glass's canteen that he dropped in the him stealing the horse. And so the expedition goes out looking for him and it creates one of the, uh, the best shots in the film, in my opinion, is these torches through the trees as the, the search party is fanning out through this forest looking for Hawk and they're calling him and they eventually stumble upon Glass which surprises them since they were told glass is dead. <laughs> right. They, they went out after the, on the canteen tip, they basically went out expecting to find Hawk and instead came back with glass to the surprise of, I assume everyone except like for Bridger. Yeah. Uh, when they get back to the fort, uh, Fitzgerald has already run off with the money and uh, Bridger is left holding the bag. Shall we say, and as Dom Hall Gleason, General Hux, Captain General Hux, Captain Henry. Arthur, <laughs> Captain Henry, is about to execute Bridger, Glass uh, speaks up for him, partially confirming Bridger's innocence that Bridger didn't know that you know Hawk was murdered, and you know he he didn't want to leave me behind, and so Bridger is just thrown in jail, basically. Dom Hall Gleason finds that the safe with the rest of the money, uh, rest of everyone's money, has been broken into in Fitzgerald's escape. He threatens mm-hmm. a guy from Peaky Blinders, you know, another one of those guys, <laughs> to find out where he is and uh, found out that he was heading back to Texas. So he's going to go all the way from basically the border with Canada to Texas on horseback. Good luck and Godspeed. 
<laughs> um, I mean, to be fair, if he's not dragging Leonardo DiCaprio around on a on a stretcher, he might be able to actually do it. Probably makes a little bit better time. You're right. You uh, got you got forts about what days ride in between here and there. Maybe. maybe. Anyway, uh, the captain, General Hux, wants to go after him right away or wait for more people to wait for the, the cavalry, literally the cavalry to come mm-hmm. so they can hunt him down for his crimes. But Glass tells him that, you know, if he gets up more than a day ahead of us, we can't track him and he's lost. And so yeah. the captain reluctantly agrees to let Glass help track him, even though Glass is still pretty much half dead. Yeah, he's he's not in full tracking form. Yeah. Uh, so they they head up after Fitzgerald uh, and at one point decide to stupidly split the party of their party of two. To, <laughs> Classic mistake is a DM. I've seen it a million times. Never yeah. split the party. Never split the party. Uh, Captain General Hux goes uh, to the left and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Hugh Glass goes to the right. Uh, unfortunately, the left was the right way to go. And General Captain Hux gets killed dead. Yeah. For, <laughs> you know, for being a stand-up, uh, a stand-up guy, his reward is death. Yeah. Fitzgerald uh, shot first. Fitzgerald does shoot first. And leaves him for dead. A, a common theme with this guy, leaving people for dead after. I mean, it's it's the wilderness, you know. The Mounties aren't exactly like bearing down on you here. It's it's the law of the land. Uh, we get a really neat scene where we see, you know, glasses, uh, you know, survival instincts and intelligence take over. Where he uses the dresses the the body of uh, the captain up like him and puts him in position to ride the horse. And he dresses up as the captain uh, to look like a dead body. And mm-hmm. so when Fitzgerald ambushes and shoots you know, he, what he thinks is Hugh Glass and goes to confirm the kill, Glass pops up with a pistol and shoots at Fitzgerald. A, a short fight ensues. Heck Eventually, of a shot, though. Like... It would have been a heck of a shot, but I believe he was using Hugh Glass's actual rifle, which I think was implied to be a Kentucky rifle. Mm. So fairly accurate for the time. Yeah. They struggle, and it's a decent fight, but it's not as cathartic as I would have hoped. Like, Last of the Mohicans has a really great cathartic fight at the end. Yeah. This movie, not so much. It's like, oh, God, it's two really, really tired, broken people (laughs) punching each other. It's like the end of Metal Gear Solid 4, where you're just, you're two old men lazily throwing fists at each other because you don't know what else to do anymore. It's no rooftop fight with the president of the United States yelling nanomachine son is what you're saying. That was a senator, not the president of the United States. Edit that out. We got to do it over. (laughs) I can't be made to look like a fool about a game I never played. (laughs) Nanomachine son. Um, (laughs) But as their fight uh, draws to a close, Glass throws uh, Fitzgerald in the river and floats him down to the Re, who the Re lady um, slits Fitzgerald's throat. And they leave Hugh Glass uh, to his own devices as he has a final shot looking up at the snow. Uh, or looking up at the sky as the snow is falling, and the movie ends. Yeah. Sees a vision of his wife. See his tear-filled eyes. The end. Nobody lives happily ever after. You, you think maybe Bridger does. Um, 
Maybe Bridger. I mean, the two people who knew of his innocence, one of them definitely died. One of them probably died. No, Hugh Glass lived. Hugh Glass survived the the whole ordeal. Um, I feel like movie Hugh Glass may be a little more nebulous. Maybe. But history tells us that Hugh Glass lived. Yeah. Taking this movie as a as a soul, as a singular story, it's definitely un- left to uncertain. So now we have to make the tough decision, uh, which is the which is the superior film, The mm-hmm. Martian, with its uh, dry wit and you know quick paced story and humor, or The Revenant, with its uh, excruciating, uh, debilitating soul-crushing uh you know narrative about father like family protecting children and the failures of family members to protect children (laughs) yeah it's very it's definitely the two movies share a common theme and it's like every you know so often the the story just goes and then something went wrong You know, yeah, like- I, I I think that with uh, the Revenant, um, the things that go wrong make more sense and are a little more believable than just. And now we need some drama. I mm-hmm. mean, it definitely felt like that. It's like, what? Okay, now his now his Pawnee friend is dead. Like this guy just can't catch a break. Yeah, yeah. I will say definitely. I for me the 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 story of the Martian kind of had bigger stakes that I was more attached to. And I think it's it's a more simplistic movie, but I think it's also like an easier watch. Yeah, I, I felt more like I felt the story of the Martian is convoluted as it is with like it's like why is this other Mav here? Like, what are the Chinese doing? Like, it's got its 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 issues. I think despite them like trying to like slow it down and explain it, but I I still felt I more I- connected to those stakes. I think that any of the issues can be, you know, hand waved away as being like, you know, it's a version of our reality, but things are just a little bit more advanced. Obviously it's set what? 20, 2030, something 20, like that. Yeah. It's very not set too far future. from now. Yeah. Everyone's still got cell phones and there are no flying cars. People are still listening to disco for some godforsaken reason. <laughs> it's, I mean, I think the disco works. It works for me. And the, it, it it creates a great you know some great humor and great juxtaposition with Mark Watney's you know face, but like why is that the only music that exists? <laughs> why is she the only one that brought music? Like wouldn't you know the German guy have brought in, brought some of his music and you know uh, Michael Pena brought some of his music and Sebastian Stan? I don't know any of their characters' names, so I'm just listing yeah. off the actors. And <laughs> Sebastian Stan would have you know. Brought some of his music and uh, Kate the, Mara would have brought some of hers. The entire cast of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, the the only people that aren't in a Marvel movie in that film. Uh, Jeff Daniels. Mm-hmm. Sean Bean. Um, Sean Bean so far. Right. Um, although I feel like he could be in Captain Marvel. It could happen. Yeah. 
Um, there was a, I found a petition for him to be Uncle Ben so that he could die in a Spider-Man movie. <laughs> that is perfect, <laughs> in all honesty. Um, speaking of Spider-Man, Childish Gambino, Donald Glover is in Spider-Man Homecoming playing Miles mm-hmm. Morales' uncle. We're digressing, but fuck it, it's our <laughs> podcast. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of times during the Martian where we're like, oh, that guy's in a Marvel movie. Oh, so were they. Oh, so was, so was she. <laughs> Like, yeah, uh, Matt Damon is technically in two uh, two uh, Marvel-based movies. He's in Thor Ragnarok playing mm-hmm. um, playing stage play Loki, and he's in uh, Deadpool 2 playing a redneck talking about toilet paper. That's right. He's in there with Alan Tudyk. Yeah, him and Alan Tudyk are dressed up in a whole bunch of... Uh, <laughs> whole bunch of makeup and they get killed by Josh Brolin, who is also in <laughs> another Marvel movie. Oh, what a tangle web web we weave when right? we own half of the movie industry. Yeah. But um, um <laughs> the back Revenant to the, the two movies at hand. So the Revenant, I think, has good bones to it. There's some really interesting scenes and some very good cinematography. But I think the overall story, it's just, I can't, I don't want to turn on The Revenant and watch it. It's too, um, almost like torture porny. You know, it's like, why yeah. I never want to see Hostel again? It's like, I don't need to see that. I saw it once and I got the, again, the catharsis at the end kind of makes it worth it where he takes his revenge on the guy that did it, you know, got him involved in the whole thing in the first place in mm-hmm. Hostel. And the catharsis isn't as satisfying. And I think that's a message the film is trying to make. It's like, you know, if you, you know, those who start out on the path of revenge must first dig two graves. Yeah. It's like nowhere in the history of even this story, does anyone regret revenge if they actually get it in a satisfying way? Mm-hmm. Hugh Glass did forgive uh, Bridger because of the um, insistence of uh, the captain who didn't die in real life. Um, yeah. But uh, we don't. We know he did track down Fitzgerald, and Fitzgerald was never heard of again. Hmm. Whether or not Hugh Glass murdered him in the wilderness and left him for dead, sent, that's a, sent him down exactly. the river, literally. Yeah, that's literally exactly what Hugh Glass did to him. <laughs> um, and yeah, to me, the Revenant kind of comes across as like. Well, first of all, let me say I'm. Glad that Leonardo DiCaprio eventually got his Oscar. Um, to me personally, I feel feel that he put out much better performances previously. Yeah, and it but, was one of those very political things. Like, well, he's done so many good performances. Let's do it for this one because I feel that Departed, his characterization was better. I feel that The Aviator, uh, he embodied a lot of what made Howard Hughes, and he made a really compelling character and story within that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gangs in New York, you know, he was able to stand up, in my opinion, next to Daniel Day-Lewis and not get overshadowed by him entirely. No small task indeed. And like, that's why I'm happy. I'm happy because of all the other work that Leonardo DiCaprio has done. And I'm, I'm just glad that he got recognized. You know, it's like um, uh, Scorsese, like finally getting his Oscar. But again, I would also argue that, funny enough, the, uh, those three films I just mentioned are all mm-hmm. Scorsese films. Uh, that Scorsese, <laughs> exactly. while, while the, the Departed was a very good film, it was by no means Scorsese's best. And yeah. um, he should have won multiple years prior. 
It wasn't an Oscar movie. And this feels like it was a vehicle to get an Oscar. It's like, to me, it, it has tones of like Leonardo DiCaprio, like flagellating himself in front of the Oscar co- voting which is, committee. Which is actually uh, like some opinion pieces that I, I, I read were talking about like, you know, it's it's a bit dangerous that Leonardo DiCaprio got his Oscar this way because of like the precedent it shows and sets mm-hmm. and that the precedent the Academy has set that basically torture yourself and your crew for a few months and get, you know, accolades for it. It's right. Like, you know, the whole dying for your art thing. It's like, do you really want to put that forward as a thing that should be, you know, lauded? Right. And I, I was referring to the flagellation that like the character receives, but you're absolutely right that like filming conditions on this movie were tough, were brutal, were, you know, like, no, we need to camp out and wait for the correct lighting or there were, I think there were multiple days where like the entire, like, you know, 150 person crew only got one meal in the morning and they were made to camp out at night because the, you know, the, the weather wasn't favorable for the shots that Naranetu wanted. Um, it comes off very filmmaker masturbatory in all honesty mm-hmm. with the, the whole, we're making it with natural light. And again, when I was in the theater, I, those thoughts were running through my head that, you know, what about natural lighting has made these shots better? It just made the movie very gray, in my opinion, which, again, the aesthetic is grimy and gray and gritty. Mm-hmm. That's okay. But you can get that aesthetic without literal terrible working conditions for your crew that basically cause a mutiny and cause massive reshoots that you have to do in Argentina. Yeah. It's like, oh shit, we need snow on the ground again. Better travel to a different country. Yeah, it's, I think like, yeah, in in rating these movies and comparing, you know, which is better, like it's it's going to be subjective. There's no other way to do it. Like, I don't feel like I have the expertise to give like a qualitative opinion on what's better. I haven't studied No one has the expert opinion, just... Be like everyone and just make an opinion out of thin air. I think everyone that's listening knows where the conclusion is going. My vote is for The Martian uh, is the better of the two films. If The Martian comes on TV, I'm going to want to watch it. If Revenant comes on TV, I'm probably not going to tune in. Um, It's just, it's too heavy. It's too, the audio mixing is weird in places. It's a little bit better for the home release and the the Blu-ray releases, but the theater audio mix was really hard to understand Fitzgerald. Like we had subtitles at certain points and like that we turned on for Fitzgerald. Yeah. Because that accent and that, uh, and, and everything else that Tom Hardy is doing is too hard to understand. It feels like the, his character a bit in Peaky Blinders where like he's doing this weird Cockney Jew accent because Mm -hmm. that's what his character is, is a Cockney Jew and you can't fucking understand it. Yeah. And I, I agree completely. I, think the martian is the better film i would like you said i would watch that in a heartbeat over the revenant again so that's our episode i guess uh well that's it for us folks uh we'll catch you next time with another two films and we'll we'll break that tie between their their scores on imdb for the match cut podcast i have been matt and i've been aaron and have a great Uh, Time of day, wherever you are, night, morning, drive to work, uh, work. Have a great that thing you're doing. Have a great one. Bellissimo. Grazie ragazzi. (laughs) 